Take your Bibles, turn to the book of Acts, chapter 17. We find ourselves in the middle of this chapter, and I suppose it would be easy for us to look at this episode at Mars Hill by the Apostle Paul and think to ourselves, well, now this is how each of us are to engage the culture. You know, we're to get in the middle there and have these kind of conversations. And while that is a reasonable application, I would suggest to you, I think, that that is a secondary one. But the central takeaway from this is it's not about, you know, how good it was of Paul to do this, but how great the gospel is. That the gospel can go anywhere at any time whether in the hallways of academia, whether sitting in a Denny's in middle America, whether at a mission with the homeless, the gospel can go anywhere at any time and be applied. It's applicable to the intellectual elite and for the simple-minded person. And my dear friends, I think what I want us to understand is that at our disposal, let's think about this, we have at our disposal the most important solution for the most pressing need for all of humanity. It's in our grasp. So that is the message here. I love what Christian author Vinay Samuel has written. One sign and wonder, biblically speaking, that alone can prove the power of the gospel is that of reconciliation Hindus can produce as many miracles as any Christian miracle worker. Islamic saints in India can produce and duplicate every miracle that has been produced by Christians, but they cannot duplicate the miracle of black and white together, of racial injustice being swept away by the power of the gospel. That is Ephesians 2, of that barrier being torn down through the gospel, people coming together in reconciliation with one another. All different kinds of people. That's the power of the gospel. That's being lived in community for transformation. So let's see how Paul interacted here. Let's all stand as we look at our passage and talk about the reach of the gospel. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. There are three things first that I want to kind of just big picture uh, mention, and then we'll dive in with these three things as we proceed. The first is that it's obvious that Athens was full of idolatry. Secondly, 
that the people in Athens placed a high view on knowledge. And thirdly, that there was a preoccupation with the latest ideas, the newest ideas. We'll talk about that more. Now, we read here that Paul had asked for Timothy and Silas to come from Berea to Athens to join him in the ministry here. And I I don't want to read too much into this passage, but I was pondering these words, waiting for them at Athens. That, that, That seems to be packed with a lot of emotion. I mean, Paul has been harassed, he's been persecuted at every stop, just like I'm being persecuted by this fly that's hovering around me and driving me crazy, all right? He's been harassed at every stop. And I think that we have a tendency to look at the apostles and put them on a pedestal without realizing that they indeed are just human beings. Yes, God has gifted them. Yes, God was using them, but they're still human beings. So as a human being, we can all relate that we all need encouragement. We all need a relationship. We all need support. And so Paul, when he says, okay, I'm waiting for Timothy and Silas. I'm really tired of being alone here. I need them to join me. Sure, there's a job to do. We get that in terms of spreading the gospel and and extra hands are going to make that job a little easier. But interwoven in those tasks are relationships that tethered them to God and to one another, a supportive community. For us today, we could say, yeah, you know what? I got to paint a house, got to clean out the garage, okay? Got to pay the bills, got to go to work, have to get the groceries, have to take the kids to practice, all of these things. But in the midst of it, can we say, we will wait for our sister, for our brother, for our spouse, for our child to meet with, to interact with, to relate to. I mean, God's kingdom, it's much more than just what we get done. Even more so, I would say, it's the love that impacts the kingdom. The two greatest commandments are what? To love God, to love people, that is the engine of the kingdom of God. And so Paul says, man, I can't wait for Timothy and Silas to get here. So Paul's waiting for them in Athens. And our passage says his spirit is provoked within him because of the idols at Athens. Now, provoked has the idea of being very upset. Now, that doesn't mean he's angry at the people. I don't think that was the case. I don't think he was, you know, wanting to give a diatribe against the culture. He's not, you know, devising some sit-in to burn all the records of the hottest bands in Athens. I don't think that's what he's interested in doing. He's confronting ideas. He's confronting worldviews that are preeminent and keeping these people in bondage. Now, we know from the conversation that happens later of him giving a message and the interaction with the Athenians 
that idolatry was a chief problem here. When he saw statues and and other pieces of art, they were a reflection of what the people were thinking and what they worshipped. And though Athens had four to 500 years before this had already had their glory days, it was still a center for cultural and, and intellectual pursuits in the Roman Empire, which was now ruling. But the intellectual capital of Athens was evident in the art. Now, Luke doesn't write here, he doesn't say, you know, there was a box full of art, there was a room full of art. He said, or, or, or of idols, excuse me, but the idols were typified by the art. He said, there is a city full of idols. A city full of idols. That means everywhere you looked, there was an expression of this idol worship. Pisanias, a Greek geographer of the second century, states that Athens had more image than all of Greece images, idol images, than all of Greece put together. Xenophon, a philosopher and contemporary of Socrates and Plato, calls Athens one great altar, one great offering to the gods. And in the Agora, which was kind of a, a public you know, square central in, in Athens, it's said to have had every god of Olympus featured in it. So it's like every building was a sanctuary to one of the gods. And the art was impressive, right? I mean, you can still see some of it today. But Paul was not awestruck by the beauty of the art, but our passage said he was provoked because of the message of the art. And this message was believed by the Athenians. But if you think about it, really, art is never truly abstract. Art is a means of communicating something. And I know that runs against the grain in our society where, you know, uh, you know, we think that the individual defines the meaning. The individual defines reality and truth. But art, all art, is a means of communicating something, even if the originator of that art is saying everything is meaningless, that's a message that that artist is giving. That's communicating a meaning. It's, in our culture, I think it's really absurdity to think that art is utterly meaningless and because and, uh, every representation is saying something. Now, certainly there's, there can be bad art, there can be bad technique, and conversely, there's beautiful artistry. But it says something. It, it's saying a statement about reality or, or, or truth. And so every piece of art defies the notion that it's meaningless. So Paul is addressing the idea behind this art. And in this case, in Athens, it was clearly demonstrating an affiliation to idol worship. Athens was especially decorated with Hermae. These were pillars mounted with heads of, of Hermes, the god of trade, god of wealth, god of fertility. He was a busy god, apparently. Now, Paul is not some neophyte when it comes to art. 
Remember, he grew up in Tarsus, and Tarsus was a, a Greek university city where art was all around the city, that city as well. So he was familiar with these structures of, of beauty and grace. But as a Jewish Christian now, he's also tipped off as to the meaning behind these things. It's not just some cultural achievement, but it's the worship of false gods. It's idols. And instead of being filled with admiration for this great work, even though in, you, know, you could say it, it was that in and of itself, just as a, as a piece of art, he was deeply distressed by what it was communicating. In fact, Paul would write in 1 Corinthians 10, 14, that we are to be free from idols, we're to flee all idols. And the psalmist would write, the idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak. They have eyes, but do not see. They have ears, they don't hear, nor is there any breath in their mouths. Those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. So idols are those things that we put our trust in. They take the place of God. Even though these are dead things, people still think, you know, that they speak and hear, but they don't do any of that. They don't have any senses. And when the, when the psalmist writes that those who make them become like them, he's saying, practicing idol worship, you know what it does? It makes you spiritually deaf and dumb, just like that idol. Now, this is an easy application, and we're all guilty of it, so I don't want to get on a diatribe about this, but it seems so obvious I would be, I think, failing to do my duty as a pastor to not mention it. In her book, American Girls, Social Media, that's what I want to underline, Social Media, and the Secret Lives of Teenagers, researcher Mary Jo Sales reports a conversation with a teenage girl at a mall in L.A. who told her, told her and I quote, social media is destroying our lives. And Sales told her, so then why don't you go off of it? I mean, it seems reasonable, doesn't it? Something that's, that's destroying you, okay? Get rid of it, smash it. The girl's response was instant. She said, because then we'd have no life. Another author, Trevin Wax, was commenting on this, and he said, if I were to cast the conversation in spiritual, uh, spiritual terms, I'd put it this way, my idol is destroying me. But if I smash my idol, then I disappear. My idol is that thing in my life that if I were to get rid of, I'd be lost. I'd feel like I had no life. Now, that could be a whole host of things, right? Could be material possessions, could be a TV, could be, you know, sports, could be a whole host of things that can take the place of the adoration of God. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day and with those who happened to be there. Here we see the versatility of the gospel. I love this, is that he was conveying it to religious people in a synagogue and then to those outside of that synagogue in the marketplace. And notice the approach, okay? Um, 
it says that he reasoned in the synagogue and with those in the marketplace. He reasoned with them. I know that there are sections of Christianity, Christendom within America, and not just America, but kind of anti-intellectual, you know, any talk about philosophy or reasons or apologetics, you know, that's for eggheads and has nothing to do with the regular Christian. And, and I think that we ought not to do that, okay? Because the, the Christianity is a reasonable, okay, faith. We have, we have facts to back up what it is that we believe. So I don't want to denude the faith by just throwing out all those facts and saying it doesn't matter, because I think it does. That doesn't mean I know all the answers. It just means that there are, I have the confidence in the gospel that there are answers that are there. And by the way, I think they're the best answers available, right? Reasoned in the synagogue. Reasoning. Oh, that we would be a people that could reason well. I think there's a beauty about that. And there's a beauty about that I think that the world can recognize when we come. And not, not that, again, I'm not claiming that we have to be the smartest person in the room, but that we understand that there is a reason for the hope that's within us. In the 1957 movie, 12 Angry Men, there's a young man's fate that's in the hands of 12 jurors. And he's on trial for the murder of his father. And the 12 jurors walk into this hot, cramped jury room, and all but one who's played by Henry Fonda, is ready to be done with the inconvenience of this trial. I mean, let's just get on with the guilty verdict and get back to our lives, right? They've heard all they want to hear, and they seem unwilling to consider the possibility that the young man could be innocent. And only Fonda's character seems sensitive to the fact that some important things actually hang in the balance, like the life of this young man, right? And so as Fonda's character argues for reasonable doubts, the others don't want to listen. And uh, they point to the, the murder weapon, a kind of unique knife. And everyone is convinced that the knife is so rare and the boy's story so implausible that the defendant must be guilty. And frustrated with Fonda as the lone holdout, one says, you know, take a look at that knife. It's a very unusual knife. I've never seen one like that, and the others kind of murmur in agreement. And all Fonda says, he goes, I'm just saying it's possible. I can find, you know, good reason to, to not believe this. And then the jurors get angry, and one says, it's not possible. Okay? As if, you know, he has no bias. <laughs> and at that moment, Fonda reaches calmly into his pocket, and he pulls out an identical knife. He pops the blade, lays it in the middle of the table, and one asks him, well, where did you find that? And Fonda says, well, last night I took a little stroll in the neighborhood of where this man was killed, and just two blocks down from the murder scene, I got this from a pawn shop. It was six bucks. And Fonda's character alone stopped long enough to take an honest, careful, unbiased look at the evidence and his courageous confrontation with the evidence ultimately reveals an astonishing truth that the young man was innocent 
one by one. All the jurors came to that conclusion. I'd like to think that the gospel can be approached this way. That if, if we're willing to enter into a conversation. Now, there are, I'm not here to diss all the other ways in which the gospel is communicated. I don't think I need to. But I'm just here to put up before you, I think, one of the best ways. And that is to just enter into a, a spiritual conversation to interact, to converse with somebody, to ask questions, to not act like a know-it-all, and, and have an ongoing conversation that is, that is reasonable, that looks at evidence. What I have found from my experience is that most people really appreciate that kind of an approach. And I think that's exactly what Paul was doing, is just laying it out before the people. And there were people there who benefited. Others, of course, were biased and didn't want to give a look at it. And we'll talk about that here in a second. But I have found that if you're willing to have that conversation, there are people that will enter into that conversation and will benefit. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, Why does this, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. So there, there's two worldviews in this city's thought. And Paul was discussing this worldview, uh, these two worldviews with his worldview and how they kind of competed against each other. And he was doing this with the leading philosophers of the day. Now, that, that, that took some chutzpah on the part of, of Paul, right? And both of these philosophies, Stoicism and Epicureanism, were diametrically opposed to Christianity. I mean, here's Paul talking about, you know, the doctrine of, of one, you know, Jehovah God, of, of each individual having a soul, of their being, uh, each individual also being guilty of sin, of breaking a, a moral commandments of God, about redemption and salvation in Christ, about the resurrection of the body, and about eternal life, and the individual soul, um, going, living beyond the grave. These are all things that were opposed by Stoicism and Epicureanism. Now, this, this first one, Epicureanism, was named after Epicurus. And Epicurus is one that um, is attributed with saying that eat, drink, and be merry, and for tomorrow, you know, you shall die. But actually, Epicurean philosophy talked more about moderation. Now, it still said that... Um, Pleasure was the ultimate goal, but there are some pleasures that will lead to maybe pain. And if you have a greater pain than pleasure that's, that's in, uh, you know, experienced, then it's better to, to moderate that pain. So let's say a, a drunken binge, you know, you're going to pay for that the next day. That wasn't worth whatever high you got from the drink. So you have, to, you have to moderate the pleasure. So they tried to apply that everywhere. Now, they also taught that we're nothing but material beings. And so we dissolve after death. So the notion of, you know, kind of having an ethical life or the notion of spiritual truths, this was lost on the Epicureanism. They, they, they had little value for that. 
Our highest aim is personal gratification. If there were any de deities, they're so far out there in the universe, they're disjointed from us. And then you have the Stoics. They were pantheists. Now, pantheist means all God. They thought that God could be accessed through nature or reason. And our souls are absorbed into God once we die. Yeah, so we kind of lose our individual personality. Uh, they believe that everything that happened was because of this God, and again, not a, not a personal deity, but more of a pantheistic version, impersonal God. And therefore, all the things that we experience in life have to be accepted without resentment. And so we have these strong passions like, you know, pleasure, pain, joy, and grief. These are relegated to those who cannot transcend beyond that with reason. So you're kind of at the lower level of things if you're experiencing these great passions. So the Stoic is the person who doesn't experience that. So, you know, often when you hear of a, you know, a very Stoic person, we think of a person who's cold and, and aloof. And that's exactly what they were propagating in order to, to make it through life. So it's these two groups that, that got together and, and Paul is conversing with, but they respond because, you know, they are within the bubble of their worldview. They say, you know, this guy's just a babbler. Well, that's a term that's taken for a bird that's picking seed upon the ground. And, and it has the idea that Paul is just taking these, many of these different disjointed ideas and throwing it out there without any deep understanding. Just bits and pieces from other sources while not really understanding any of them. That's a babbler. Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Well, with this pantheism, the Athenians believed that there was a male deity uh, that was brought back to life by a female deity. And so when Paul was talking about a resurrection, they were equating that with a female deity. And so when he talked about Jesus being male and then resurrection, that attributed to some kind of female deity. So when he says he seems to be a preacher of foreign deity, deities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection, most think that's what he was referring to. And then they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, if you look on the screen, the Areopagus was that uh, general area uh, on the left, where he had all kinds of different um, buildings. Actually, that, that was the uh, Acropolis, was, was what that was called. The Areopagus was this part on the right, which was a, a, um, a hill, a rock, that people would get on and, and speak before. And so that was right next to the Acropolis, which was all the different buildings on the left. And this sat in Athens. That's where Paul was. Well, it's kind of cool that you can still see these places that Paul was at. And so um, this is where Paul was. And this 
what became the known as the Areopagus and later was known as Mars Hill. Ares was a, a Greek god of war, and when the Romans took over, uh, they related their god of war, uh, Mars, to this and renamed it. So it was Mars Hill. This new teaching of Paul, that's where he was. He's on this hill, conversing with these philosophers. And it says, now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Without any firm basis for truth, and if anything describes our culture, it's that. Okay, Without any firm basis for truth, how can we discern truth from error? Well, you can't, because truth and error aren't even categories that are accepted with the modern mind today. And yet, I hope we understand the absurdity of that, because ultimately, when you're talking with somebody, everybody affirms there's some truth of some kind, or they can't even operate in this life. But these people had no filter to discern truth from error, at least from a philosophical standpoint of what they were talking about. But they're very curious. And they're... They're they're prone to have their attention given to the latest and the greatest and the shiniest new thing to come along. Desmothenes, who was a Greek philosopher that lived about 400 years before Paul, said that any army could come to the front door of Athens and defeat Athens because they were so distracted by the newest knowledge. Surface understanding. The, the, the very thing that they were accusing Paul of is exactly what they're guilty of. I mean, it's like reading the tweets of a political debate instead of listening to the actual debate. And you're going off the tweets. I mean, our society regurgitates information at such a fast rate, it overwhelms any deep understanding. I read this week that most Americans consume almost 100,000 words a day. I find this hard to believe, but, you know, if it's on the Internet, it has to be true, okay? (laughs) 100,000 words a day. That's equivalent to a novel, every day that we're reading these bits of information, and they said they come from, get this, 285 sources. So this quote, that person who said this, this friend who texted this, you know, this YouTube video. How is that even possible? But that's what it said. That's a lot of information, but very little understanding. And people are, being, people are being so distracted that in Honolulu now, okay, you, you can get a ticket by crossing the road on your smartphone because people are running into things and they don't want them to be distracted, okay? In Austria, and I had to look this one up because I couldn't believe it, but it's true, okay? The Department of Safety has installed airbags on some light posts 
know. Jeez. I don't need to tell you why. Now, I'm not, I'm not claiming causation here, but I am just wanting to make the point that this insatiable desire for information has become our new idol, okay? And it's impacting us, and I'm not sure it's all for the good, okay? Now, look, phones are not evil, okay? Computers are not evil. Getting information, okay, not bad. So what I'm trying to make a point for is moderation. Studies have consistently shown that people who have less compassion, lower emotional intelligence, and are more prone to narcissism use social media more often. Now listen, I don't need help with narcissism. All right? That's, it, it's embedded in all of our flesh. I think of myself all too often, and that's my biggest problem. Okay? And you're saying, you finally get it short. We've been trying to tell you that for a long time. The gospel is about connection with God and our connection with others being enhanced. Two greatest commandments, what? Love God, love people. Relationships. And social media has the kind of impact, and particularly an overabundance of it, of being very focused on self. But the gospel comes and just blows all that up. And it says, it's not about you. Okay? That I'm a God who is here, who wants a relationship with you. And, and you, even though I know you've got pains and you've got hurts, you are here now to minister to others and to love well, to love me and to love others. So no matter the time or place, whether it's Athens 2,000 years ago or America, South America, Europe, Asia today, the gospel saves us from ourselves. And it saves us from the worst that our culture has to offer. And it saves us from those temptations like racism, party politics that separate us, identity politics. These things pull us apart. And then we have Paul saying, wait a minute, there's a gospel of peace. Where formerly there were these boundaries, there was this great separation, but the gospel comes and brings unity. And it's the most beautiful thing then when you see that lived out within community, a diverse group of people. Democrat and Republican, white and black, coming together in community, living as one. We partake of worship together. We fellowship together. We're on mission together as a unified covenant community. 
that demonstrates the gospel. And the world looks at that, and what they're seeing is an answer to prayer of Jesus in John 17, who said, they will know that I was sent by my Father when they see my disciples loving one another. That's the body of Christ. So, we, me, need to do all we can to quit thinking so much about ourselves and to think more. Now, I'm not saying in unhealthy ways. I know we have to take care of ourselves, and I want to be healthy emotionally, spiritually, and and physically, I get that, but I do that so that I can be better at this, so that I can love better, so I can love my wife, my kids, and you, and the people around me. That's the call of God upon our lives. So I I look at the things in my life that get in the way of that, and I'm saying, well, do I really need that? Some might be necessary, some might not. Some can be moderated. So we have to look at our lives as individuals and approach things with this degree of moderation and let God call the shots in terms of what we're on earth to do.